continue on in John, um, and we've done the introduction, the, the prologue, which as we talked about over the last two weeks, uh, shapes the whole gospel. We see everything uh, that John is going to talk about is, is listed in the first 18 verses, and we move now uh, into what I call seeing Jesus. This is, is the first testimony or first witness that John is bringing to bear. His whole book is about bringing to bear witnesses, evidence, proof of Jesus' existence, that he's the Son of God, that he came here to redeem us, uh, that he is our only hope. This is what all Scripture points to. And so this morning, we're going to dive into the record of John the Baptist and wander over, finishing the chapter, looking at the response of some of the disciples. And so we will be seeing Jesus. Uh, I was thinking about how to illustrate how John's focus was, and I was thinking about how my kids oftentimes will engage uh, in their play or their imagination. And I love it when Avery and Clay get completely involved in what they're doing, so engrossed in their world uh, that they have created that nothing can break their focus. You can't distract them. You can only join them. Uh, yesterday, celebrating Christmas with the extended family, uh, I have a nephew, Tristan, and, and he was playing with Paw Patrol, and I know Paw Patrol. I've, I've captured that, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you've not been around young children in a while. But uh, he was playing with his Paw Patrol toys, and I started talking to him, and he started telling me all about those toys. And, and other toys showed up, uh, other gifts, but he was having none of them. He was having his Paw Patrol. Why? He's, he's in his world. He's focused. And you're not going to pull the kids out of the world, you can only join in with them. You can only become a part of their world. And, and John, the writer, that's what always gets interesting at the beginning of the Gospel of John. There's John the Baptist and John the Apostle, the one that's writing it. But John, the writer, transitions from his introduction, and he is focusing his story now, as I mentioned, on this first proof of Christ, what he's bringing to the witness stand, his, his courtroom defense of who Jesus Christ is, and, and he wants us to make sure that we from the onset are seeing Jesus and are not distracted by anything else. And so it makes perfect sense to begin with that focused testimony of John the Baptist, which you'll see in verses 19 through 37. Now, it's helpful to understand a little bit what Israel was going through at the time. Israel, as Alfred Edersheim notes, is this, he says, it was a society that was secure, prosperous, and luxurious, yet it was in imminent danger of perishing from hidden, festering disease. There was a religious community which presented the appearance of hopeless perversion and yet contained the germs of a possible regeneration. And to put that in our words today, basically, they had a, a nice life. Economy was good, Rome had taken care of that. They were living the high life, so to speak. But the whole community that, that is designed to be God's people, well, all the religious leaders, and I say all, I, I want to remove maybe the Pharisees from that, but the Sadducees, the high priests, that whole realm was politically perverse. Their whole goal was power. It was not to teach. It was not to train. And so you have in this luxurious climate, so to speak, the society that's fairly secure, you have a religious leadership that is off, that is twisted, that is designed for the material and the temporal. And so what you have is a community that is dying off in the sense of what their, their religious 
in tune nature would be, yet there's still this hope, there's still this looking, because if you honestly went to Scripture, you know what you're seeing is not what God wants. And so you're in a, in a backdrop where they would have been searching, searching for something that would have been real, because what they see day in and day out from their religious leaders is a fraud. People notice that. They see who they are. They see their power-hungry grabs. And so this climate where religious leaders are consumed with politics and power, in comes John the Baptist, a true prophet. He arrives and he creates quite a stir and a following. And if you're a religious elite, if you're a religious leader, then someone who creates a stir, someone who's drawing people out from Jerusalem and Judea and all these different parts must be investigated. And so the whole story of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John begins with a delegation. That's 19 through 28. And as I mentioned, John the Baptist has created that stir. People are coming from all over. Matthew tells us that. Matthew 3, 5, and 6. It says, Then went out to him, Jerusalem, not some from Jerusalem. The implication is everyone is going to see him in all Judea, in all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And I want to highlight it lightly now and talk later. It is not normal for a Jew to come and be baptized confessing their sins. It was normal for a Gentile to come and self-baptize and say, I want to be a Jew, I want to follow Judaism, and to confess their sin. But a Jew was by birthright God's people. They were already good with God. And so you have a whole community, a whole city coming out to hear something they haven't heard in 400 years, to see a true prophet who is now not self-baptizing, but he's baptizing them, and they're coming out and confessing to be sinners, confessing that, that they are not by birthright good with God. That shook the rulers, and so they must send that delegation out. In all reality, they always had a vested interest in anyone who could sway the crowd and possibly endanger their position from Rome. As we get to the end of the Gospel of John, what is one thing that Caiaphas is going to say? It's going to be good that one person dies, basically, before we lose everything. We've got to get rid of Jesus before Rome finds out about him because we can't afford for this guy to keep doing what he's doing. They have a vested interest in anything that's taking place. And so as Harrison notes, since John's father, remember, was a priest, the deputation from the temple hierarchy expected cooperation in trying to get a self-appraisal from John. Who in the world are you? You can't just be a son of a priest. You've got to be something else than this. Yet he insisted the whole time on turning it into an opportunity to exalt the coming one. And so we'll look at the text here, 19 through 28. It says this, and this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. In other words, part of the delegation contained Pharisees. They were 
part of the leadership, not the majority. They are the minority, but they're a strong minority. And so they ask a kind of arrogant question that comes next. They said unto him, uh, and they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest then thou, thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethbara, which is Bethany beyond Jordan, not the Bethany we read about next to Jerusalem, but one that's across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so we, we come to this portion of Scripture, and we have this delegation coming to John, and they begin with a series of questions to find out who he is, all of which John uses to turn their attention to Christ. And that is the main point that I'm going to try to make with everything about John the Baptist. Everything John the Baptist does is used to turn people to Christ, to put the focus on Christ. He will not be distracted from what God had called him to do. And so they begin by asking, are you the Messiah? This was the identity that's foremost on their mind because it's foremost on the mind of the people. It's been 400 years of silence. There's not been a true prophet. No one's denying that there's not been a prophet. When John the Baptist comes, the authenticity of John is obvious to everyone. No one is doubting that he's a prophet. Everything about him fulfills prophecy, that fulfills what a prophet should look like. They know it. And so this whole expectant idea that's in this culture, this whole idea that what we're looking at and how we worship is not right, it's tainted, it's perverse, it's off, and people know it. And so they're making sure, are you claiming to be the Messiah? John the Baptist emphatically denies it. That's why it's written that way. He doesn't just say, I'm not the Christ, as he says about the other things, but instead make sure they understand and corrects their thinking, I am not the Messiah. They continue and just shows their arrogance because they have a list of things. Are you this? Are you that? Or this one? Instead of just asking somebody, hey, who are you? They first have to go through their preconceived notions. And so they said, are you Elijah? Because everything about John points to a major change, to the rival, the long-expected one. And they know from Malachi that Elijah will precede Christ. I'm not going to doubt that these guys knew Scripture. They did. And so if you're not the Messiah, but everything you're doing feels like the Messiah is coming, then if you're not him, then are you Elijah? Because in Malachi, it promised that Elijah would come back. Now, they haven't picked up on the reality that Christ is going to come twice, that this is his first coming and the second coming in judgment, and they don't know how that all ties in. What does John the Baptist say? No. Now, we may wonder how we reconcile his no with what the other accounts say, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they speak about him being the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus is recorded saying in Luke that John had come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Matthew records a dialogue with the disciples that says Elijah had come, meaning John the Baptist, and was murdered, and then Christ tied it in saying, I'm going to suffer and die as well. But the fact is this, though, John did not see himself as that fulfillment. John is not sitting there saying, I am Elijah. I'm coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. But that doesn't negate the reality of it. Just because he didn't know doesn't mean he didn't accomplish. Leon Morris notes this. He says, no man is what he himself thinks he is. 
He is only what Jesus knows him to be. And so John the Baptist may not of and did not know that he fulfilled that prophecy, but he did. Which makes me wonder this, if we've processed that same thought or question personally, what does Jesus know us to be? No man is what he is in his own eyes. He really is only as he is known by God. And so as we're looking at John the Baptist and even this dialogue about Elijah, I ask this question of all of us, how does God know you? Not how do you think you're known by God, but how does God know you? Now, this, this, these answers don't bring the delegation any closer to the answers that they want or need, and so they try yet another identity. They say, are you the prophet? And here they're thinking about what Moses had predicted. If you go to Deuteronomy, Moses says there's going to be a prophet that comes like me. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. And at this time, first century AD, people were confused. The, the religious elites weren't, weren't sure. Nobody was, was confident. This was either another forerunner of Christ or it was a prophecy about Christ. Now, as you read through Scripture, as you read in Acts, we recognize uh, with Stephen and with Peter that, that Christ fulfilled this prophecy, that he is the prophet. We're going to see in Philip's response or answer or connection with Nathaniel that he believed that the, the prophet was going to be the Messiah. But they weren't sure. And so they asked the question, are you this prophet? And John bluntly says no. He doesn't say it nice. He doesn't say it calm. He doesn't say it uh, smoothly. He's frustrated now. He's done with this conversation. I believe he knows the prophet's pointing to Christ, and so he answers, no, I've already answered this question. Absolutely not. And so they finally come to what would be the logical way to approach him. Who are you? And John quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And when Isaiah was writing that prophecy, he was talking about the return of Israel from exile. He was referencing the idea and the concept of what you would do. If a king was coming to your land, you would go to the wilderness and you would clear the road. You would level the hills out. You would make sure that his entryway was unhindered. And so John is saying here, I am going to be an, a person who takes all the hindrance away from Christ. I want to make sure no one's confused. I want to make sure they understand that he's coming. And I hope you can see something. John turns every question about his identity and makes it point to Christ, the Messiah. And let's go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. He's called the Word who is already here. John the Baptist, on the other hand, and he tells us this, I'm just a voice. I'm not the Word. I'm a voice proclaiming the word, preparing the nation for the coming of the word. I am here leveling the highway so that there's no hindrance to seeing the king of kings. His answer literally removes himself from any prominence or any importance. His role is to proclaim and prepare for the Savior to come. These focused responses now stir up the Pharisees that were part of the delegation. This delegation had come from the temple authorities. They are, again, as I mentioned, a strong minority. So that means they're not the majority. Mainly Sadducees rule uh, in the Sanhedrin and in temple hierarchy. However, they are there. 
And they are the teachers. They are the ones that adhere to the law. They've built an oral tradition that's gone way beyond the law. They're the sticklers. And so it makes sense that they're part of the research committee. And now they question John's right to baptize. Again, they're offended by this. They hold to this idea that we're Jews. We are right with God by birthright. We're born into this by our legacy, by our heritage. And we're fine with Gentiles getting in and self-baptizing and coming out and saying we're horrible, wicked people and we need to become Jews. We need to believe this and we need to repent of our sins. Uh, They're very bothered by the fact that it's mainly Jews that John is baptizing, that Jerusalem is emptying and coming to John to get baptized, acknowledging their sin and not claiming any birthright. What do they come up saying? They're confessing their sin. He's preparing the way. And so it bothered them, and they they questioned John's authority. What right do you have to be doing that? Now, the natural response that any of us would have would be to defend the right. God's called me to this. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is what I want to, again, highlight this idea. Nothing that John does ever points to himself. And so being John, he doesn't defend himself. Instead, he turns that question into an opportunity to point to Christ and Christ's preeminence. He says an interesting thing. I'm only baptizing with water. I'm I'm just using some water here. He goes on, but there's someone that you don't know, someone whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. So here's the idea that he does to them. And I want you to remember, the Pharisees are the teachers. They're the, the religious elites. These are people that would have their own disciples, people that would have their own following. And he says something to them. He says, I'm not worthy to baptize. I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. He, he lets them know that he's not able, in his mind, worthy to do the most menial task for any slave to do. Context helps again. All of these men are teachers. They would have disciples. Now, if you're a religious teacher in the first century, you don't get paid for it. That would be considered awful to charge, to teach scripture. But they did have this. Their disciples were expected to do everything for them. So they would get their cloak. They would get their meal. They would would serve their teacher. But there was a rule that you could never have one of your disciples untie or tie your shoes. That though a disciple can serve their master, they would never go so low as to tie or untie the shoes or sandals. And they never could be asked to do this. And so when the elite teachers in the nation come to him and say, what right do you have to baptize He says, I don't even have the right to do the lowest task that you wouldn't even ask your disciples to do for you. It would be considered taboo. He uses a very vivid illustration to drive a a, a nail, a spike, right into the heart of their question. And this all takes place at Bethany. Uh, Bethabara is is not the accurate town. Uh, Origen gave us that later on. But it's Bethany across the Jordan. And so ends the first day. This is the end of the delegation's questions in the opening week of John's gospel. And then the following two days, 
when John sees Jesus, he's going to make now his bold declaration. He's going to repeat a phrase, behold the Lamb of God. And the first time he sees him again, he's going to say, which taketh away the sin of the world. Day two of week one in John's gospel, because that's where we're at. We'll get all the way in this first week, we'll get all the way to a wedding feast in Canaan. And so he's going to move through this time. Day two, he sees Christ and says, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And then that's done publicly. And then the third day, he's with two of his disciples, John's disciples, happens to be Andrew and most likely John, who's writing this right now. And he tells them privately, behold, the Lamb of God. So you look at verse 29 through 37. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit. Now he's recounting a past event. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it bowed upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And then again the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, so he's privately with these two, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. When John sees Jesus again, and I use the word again because he references the time of Jesus' baptism. Has John maybe bumped into Jesus in life? Yes. But John had been promised by God that on the Holy Spirit would make it evident who the Christ was, who the Son of God was. And so when Christ came to be baptized by John is when he saw the Spirit descend and, and he knew that this was the Messiah. Christ goes off to be tempted in the wilderness and now is back again. And John sees him and immediately makes sure everyone knows this is the Savior. This is the one who's coming to redeem humanity. He knew it was him. He knew it because he had seen it at his baptism, and he wanted to make sure to confirm to everyone who the Messiah was. And so upon encountering Jesus after that baptism, he doesn't hesitate to identify him. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. By the way, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is very familiar to us from the Christian community. It became very familiar to the church in the first century. It felt natural. This is most definitely not a natural statement to be made by a Jew at this time. There is no direct connect to a certain sacrifice. It encompasses them all. Uh, a lot of commentators wander through all the woods trying to figure out why in the world John would say this, and, and I think it's very obvious that God had instructed him to say this, that this is exactly what he should have said, the Lamb of God summarizing everything as the fulfillment of Scripture. He's come, he identifies him, he stops whatever he's doing, whatever he's saying, and everything focuses on Christ. And then he explains him. He's the answer to sin. He is the preeminent and preexistent one. Remember the delegation that says, what are you doing baptizing? And he says, I'm baptizing with water. What's the reason for his baptism while I'm preparing the way. And this is the way that he would know who Christ was. He's going to come to be baptized. And, and I can't help but realize the delegation comes and, and we don't get in a car and drive home at this time. So they, they spent the night. They're there. 
the next morning. You want to know why he's baptizing? For that delegation that's asking? Jesus is why I'm baptizing. This is the reason. Here he is. And then after that public announcement, the next day, John makes sure that Andrew and John the Apostle are clear that the man he is referencing is Jesus the Messiah. Basically, he takes two of his disciples and he says, that's the Lamb of God. And the implication is, it's almost like he's lifting his eyes and saying, what are you still doing with me? Why are you with me right now? Why are you still with me? Go follow him. See, John the Baptist is the first witness that John the writer brings out so that you might believe. That's his point. See John the Baptist, that authentic prophet that the, the whole nation of Israel is very abundantly aware is a prophet, and look at him and recognize that in every interaction, John the Baptist has, has everything pointing to Christ. Every question, every argument, every opportunity was for the advance of Christ's name and his influence. And that drives a question for us as believers. How are we leveraging every opportunity to advance the gospel? Or maybe let me be more realistic uh, to, to be even self-condemning here because I would be afraid to ever use the word every opportunity for myself, but maybe more realistic for all of us, are we leveraging any opportunities for the advance of the gospel? John literally is insulted. His whole framework for teaching is questioned. And he turns around and says, I'm not worthy. You're right. He's worthy. Everything points to him. Every opportunity is leveraged for the gospel. Are we leveraging any opportunity for the gospel? John so adamantly emphasized Christ that we find two of his disciples going to follow Jesus. And so the narrative switches now to the response of disciples. I'm going to walk our way through verses 38 through 51, explain a little bit as we do that, and then kind of highlight two uh, main points. The last one is, how do you see Jesus? And we're going to see how they saw Jesus. But let's just work our way through 38, uh, verse 38 through 51. It was tempting to split this up, but it ties completely together. John the Baptist witness rolls over immediately into what John the writer wants to record. The other gospels record uh, the calling of the disciples in a more uh, um, descriptive way. He's actually not describing that calling. He's describing this initial interaction from John the Baptist, what unfolds. Uh, it says, Then Jesus turned, speaking of those two, and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? Not who, but what are you looking for? Now, they're too timid to bluntly say, we want to talk with you, we want to walk with you, we want to know you, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we got to figure out what in the world's going on, we have to attach to you. John the Baptist told us pretty much, what are you doing here? Go follow him. But they just kind of answer in a different way. They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted, Master, and John is there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit helping uh, a non-Jewish audience understand, a Jewish audience understands what rabbi means, Master, where dwellest thou? And he saith unto them, come and see. Uh, Jesus grants their real wish. Come, come and see. Come, come be with me. Get, you'll get what you want. You'll get to know me, to truly know him. And so he invites them to be with him in the late afternoon and through the evening. 
They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And even though Andrew is the first to come to Christ, by the time John is writing, Peter's name is the one that's known. And so Andrew is linked to Peter. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, which means the anointed one. It used to mean a anointed one, and by this time it means the anointed one. There's only one. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now the Greek on that verse is a little bit tricky. It's not as straightforward as we read in English at all. Jesus is specifically the one saying the statement, follow me. And in Greek, it even says that, follow me. Then the Jesus says, follow me. He is not necessarily the subject of find Philip or even the decision to go to Galilee. The point is in Greek, and and even the fact that they say Jesus said, follow me, points to the fact that he wasn't the one that found Philip. It was actually somebody else. The person finding Philip could have been and most likely was Andrew and Peter. That's what the Greek is emphasizing when they say, Jesus said, follow me, but they found Philip. And John kind of hints to that, doesn't he? Where's Philip from? The same town as Andrew and Peter. They're not in Bethsaida right now. They're all there with John the Baptist. He's still the draw. Everyone is being bumped into because they're there for John the Baptist. It all links to his first witness. All of these guys' first interaction is centered around the guy who says, everything I do is to point to Christ. And now these guys are running into each other. And so Andrew and John are are told by John the Baptist, basically, you better follow Christ. And now they go and find first find Simon. And then Simon comes there. And then they're going to bump into Philip or go find Philip, who's from their town. And they're going to bring him to Christ. And Christ says, follow me. He gives the, the command to do this. And it's not as critical, crucial to the interpretation of the text, but it does help highlight how most people are introduced to Jesus. And I want you to kind of see the flow because John does this on purpose. John the Baptist publicly says, behold the Lamb of God. The next day, he turns to two of his disciples and says, behold the Lamb of God. They then follow Jesus. They encounter Christ. They truly get to know him. And what's the first thing that Andrew has to do? Got to get my brother. Now, his brother's there listening to John the Baptist, part of this whole movement that's outside in a non-populated area. And he's coming over and says, you've got to see him. This is the Messiah. And then that follows with them going to find Philip, who's from their hometown, and saying, hey, this is it. He's here. They find him. And Jesus then says, follow me. And it's amazing what unfolds. I hope that what we see is that when you truly know Christ, you can't help but reach out to introduce others to Christ, which I hope is convicting to all of us. Because how do we respond with this message? How do we respond knowing Jesus, especially at this time of the year? Well, I'm afraid most of us respond with with selfishness or self-glorification or connection to what we are and what we do and what we're involved in. Instead, we are to be introducing people to Jesus Christ. Let's continue reading. Philip then findeth Nathanael. 
and saith unto him. By the way, Nathanael, we'll find out in John 20, is from Cana. So now there's somebody else that has met someone else in some way, shape, or form, and they're finding this person. And saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Which, by the way, the word guile is a play on Jacob's first name, which means deceiver or supplanter. In other words, he says, you are a true, you have integrity. You are the Israel that is after the deceiver. You're not, you're not filled like the original Jacob, the trickster, but you are what he became as Israel. He goes on, Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Which tells you Christ pegged his character perfectly. If he was a deceiver, he would have pretended like, yeah, I'm a good person. But he's kind of blown away that Christ hands him his character. This is who you are. This is, this is the type of person you are. Because don't forget, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what is he doing? Finding out. He's going to figure out what's there. And, and Jesus answers and he says unto him, before that Philip called thee? When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, remember what that means. Suddenly he's like, Master, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, which Christ uses throughout the gospel. It's the amen, amen. It's the truly, truly. The point is what Christ is saying, what John is being inspired to record here is what Christ often said, and it was just his way of highlighting, this is for sure true. It's, it's helping them grasp what he's about to say. I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so as you go back to, to Genesis, you go back to Jacob and his dream, and he saw the angels coming up and down on a ladder, and Christ is basically saying, Jacob saw heavens opened up, you haven't even... You can't even imagine what you're going to say. I am the ladder. I am the door into heaven. I'm opening it all up for you. And see, these opening connections to Jesus by the disciples are placed here to illustrate how we connect with Jesus, how we're to be seeing Jesus. But it all begins with that question Jesus asked Andrew and most likely John. What do you seek? What do you want? And that's a question you should ask yourself. What do you want? What are you looking for? What are you hoping to find? And they answered him. Even though they were too afraid to just be blunt, he knew. They wanted to know Jesus. They wanted to understand him, to walk with him, to share his purpose. But is that what we're seeking? Are we truly wanting to know Jesus, to understand him, to share his purpose? Or are we playing at worship so that we can check our religious box? These men were not playing. They're not at work. And everyone, you know, we love to paint Andrew and Peter and John and James as these, you know, guys with a fishing pole trying to make their living out there like a woodchuck. That's not who they were. They're actually men who had successful businesses. This is middle class America for us, small business owners. You know where they're not? They're not running their business right now because they want to know Jesus. They're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to make a change. They're willing to find, to search, to know him. Now, 
as each of these men we just talked about encounter Jesus, we see how profoundly he captures their interest. We get a glimpse of how they were seeing Jesus, and it all starts with this idea of teacher. They, they're seeing him as teacher. This is the classic first connect. Andrew and, Andrew and John say, Rabbi, teacher, great one. Even the skeptical Nathaniel, when approaching Christ, says rabbi first. But that is rarely where it stops. Each of these men end up seeing him as Messiah. This is the anointed one. He is their absolute hope, and everything in life can and should be set aside to pursue that hope. But then it, it drives another question, right, which it should. This is the whole point of the Gospel of John. It's to confront us with what we really believe and how we actually interact with him, how we deal with being his children, do we find our complete hope in him? Now, I know you're going to sit there and say, I'm, 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 a, I'm a Christian. I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about this type of hope, where everything's set aside because of him. Is he what we pursue with absolute fervor? With everything in us, is this our goal? And I know the propensity. I have the same one, to nod yes. Oh, yes, that's my goal. That's for sure my goal. Why wouldn't it be my goal? That's what the Bible's saying my goal should be. I'm going to say yes to that. Well, then ask yourself what your goals are. Or maybe pull one up that you've written, your five-year plan and some of your 10-year plans and some of your goals and visions for life, what you want to accomplish. And I'm afraid that most of it has money tacked to it or a house or a car or something else. Actually look at this because these men are showing us something, what it means to have a complete hope in him, what it means to pursue Christ with absolute fervor. Well, as we noted while reading the text, those that truly encounter Christ cannot help but reach for others. And so Philip talks to Nathaniel and lets him know they found the one from Scripture showing that he is seeing him as the prophesied one. Now, I read one commentator, and it's usually very good, but they paint Philip as some kind of dunce which fascinates me because he's the one that actually goes to Nathaniel and says, we've been reading in the Bible all of Scripture, and this is the person who we've been reading about. And then he lists him, and he actually doesn't hide anything, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Nathaniel pushes back, his response is what oftentimes we should do. All right, come and see. Come find out. If you're truly a person of integrity and you have that question, go find out. And so he, he goes to him and says, we, we know the fulfillment of Scripture. This is what we've read. This is what we believed. He is here. Now, Nathaniel is not to be considered a skeptic. He's an honest and direct man. He can't see how anyone coming from the nothing town of Nazareth could ever be the fulfillment of Scripture. He's from Cana. They're close together. Nothing is written about Nazareth. People struggled with the idea that Jesus of Nazareth, they never connected, that John the Baptist does this, they never connected he was born in Bethlehem. They would have instantly understood the implication then, oh, that's the city of David. He's our king, it makes sense. But John the Baptist doesn't give him that. He gives him he's from Nazareth. That's where he's known to be from. But in response to his stated doubt, Philip just says, come and see, and Nathaniel, being a man of integrity, does follow and meet Jesus and ultimately ends up seeing him as the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus opens up by showing his knowledge of his character, and then he proves it by referencing a location that only Nathaniel and God could know. 
His, his, his connection to the fig tree is not just a random guess. He's tying into where Nathaniel studied, most likely, his scriptures, where he was sitting before Philip would have ever come and asked him to come see him. No one knows this. Philip didn't encounter him at the fig tree, encountered him elsewhere. And so he shows his omniscience, his omnipresence. And when Nathaniel hears that, it blows his mind, and he acknowledges that Jesus is the king of Israel. But remember who he is? He's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And so if he says to Jesus Christ, you're the king of Israel, he is emphatically saying, you are my king as well. And that he is the unique son of God. Christ's response, which switches and and starts to include everyone there, is the whole thing about the heavens opened up and the glory is going to be seen. He's saying to all of them, you're going to see heavenly things. I reveal heaven to you. I am the pathway to heaven. I'm the ladder. I'm, I'm the connecting point. And I'm going to show you much more than this. But the question for us when we look at the disciples as they move from the witness of John the Baptist is how are we seeing Jesus? How are you seeing Jesus? Have you recognized him for who he truly is? the Messiah, the prophesied one, the Son of God, and this one that really strikes home at the heart of Christianity, uh, especially our type of Christianity, especially Christianity in the United States and actually around the world. Do we see him as the King of Kings with all authority and right? Because I'm afraid too many of us as believers will see him as the suffering servant, will see him as the guy who dies on the cross for our sin, that God willingly sacrificed for, to redeem me. And you see what the emphasis comes about. But we really struggle with him being the king of kings. We struggle mightily submitting our whole life to him, everything to him. But the fact is, if he's king of Israel, if he's king of everything, if he's the king of kings, then he has every authority and right over your life. Every authority over everything in life. See, John's first proof is a powerful one. Here is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, taking every opportunity to turn the focus of every situation and every conversation to the Savior that has come to earth to redeem us. Are we even showing a fraction of that type of dedication and focus? And that's really what I hope one of the takeaways is for us. As his church here Located in Culpeper, we're, we're reaching out around the world through missionaries, but do, is there even a fraction of the type of dedication and focus that John the Baptist showed? Just a small sliver of it. That we would take every opportunity, every conversation, every situation, and make sure that it's turned to point to Christ. And then two of John's disciples take the hint that John gives and go and follow Jesus. They go seeking him, seeking to know him, which Jesus makes perfectly possible, which is something you don't want to miss in that story. He makes it feasible for him. And we get to watch the snowball of outreach that comes when someone truly knows him. It's a burning desire to introduce the Messiah to others, who in coming in contact with the Savior, see him as he is, the Messiah, the prophesied one, the Son of God, the King of Kings. But what has your response been when you encountered the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior and Redeemer? What have you done when you've encountered Him? What's your answer? What's your response? 